as um, we study the book of Acts, we've come to the end of the day of Pentecost, and now we're going to see how the first church uh, starts to move from that place, from its inception, its genesis. And in this uh, consideration of the early church, as uh, has been documented by Dr. Luke uh, in the book of Acts, we're led to a passage that describes what seems to be a period of <coughs> exponential growth. There are people here at New Glasgow Christian Church who are growing in a desire to see revival. Um, and I believe that this passage is going to be helpful in helping us understand what is required of the church in order for there to be revival. So today's focus is revival and the principle of cause and effect. Revival is the first word I want us to consider. You know, we talk about it, and we sing about it, we pray for it, but what is it? What is revival? Well, to revive is to bring something that was on death's door back to life. To revive is to bring back to fullness of life. It suggests that there was life, but it's been diminished, and then there is a rejuvenation. A return to a vitality. A return to life. I don't know if that's what you think about when you think of revival. Often we think of the next thing. And that is that revival is characterized by a lot of new life. People coming for the very first time into the life that only Christ can give. Conversions. People becoming Christians. This morning I, I want to suggest to you, from Scripture and from history, that there is a causal relationship between the rejuvenation The revival of souls and the creation of new life in Christ. There's a relationship between Christians who were complacent, on the sidelines, ineffective, and simply bored with their faith. Becoming excited and infused with a new life. Rejuvenated. There's a connection between that and seeing many, many people come to know Jesus Christ. The universal law of cause and effect states very simply that for every effect 
there's a definite cause. And likewise, for every cause, there's a definite effect. It's an if-then relationship. So if the temperature falls below zero degrees, which I wish it would stop doing, <laughs> if the temperature falls below zero degrees, then water freezes. It's an if and then. If, then. The if-then that I'm suggesting we find in Scripture and in the history of the church is if Christians return to that passionate commitment to their first love, then many non-Christians will come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Some of you might be troubled already. You should be. Because I need to be very careful about I need to add a significant qualifier to this and acknowledge with, from the bottom of my heart that God is God and God does what God wants to do. Okay? So don't get me wrong. It's not like we can manipulate God into bringing revival. God does what God does. However, there seems to be, from Scripture, from history, a relationship between people returning to the passion of their faith and many people coming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But don't forget, God does what God does. He is not dependent upon us to do what he wants to do. I'll give you a real quick example of that. You remember Jonah? The guy with the big fish. Right? He was called on to go to a place called Nineveh, which was a pagan city in Assyria. There were not people back in Israel having a prayer meeting for the poor folks in Nineveh. They hated them. And Jonah, as a matter of fact, Resented being even asked of God to go present the good news to them. The good news of repentance and the good news of the true God. He didn't want to do it. That's why he got into trouble with the fish. So God does what God does. God had a plan for Nineveh. He sent Jonah, and he grudgingly went, and he told them to repent, and they repented. Hundreds of thousands of them repented and accepted the one true God as their God. So, don't take what I have to say here as some idea that there's a cause and effect, and if we simply do something, it's going to affect God, and he has to do such and such. All I'm saying is that the record shows that this seems to be the case. Let's go back in history a little bit to the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening was a great revival in the mid-18th century in the U.S. colonies and in Western Europe where many, many, many people came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It was called the Great Awakening. And one of the leaders 
of the Great Awakening was a guy who has an outstanding name, Jonathan Edwards, which actually is my brother's name. And Jonathan Edwards was a pastor, not a flashy pastor, not a you know flamboyant guy that was just sort of like brought people around because of his character. Just a guy who understood what God wanted. And so I have two quotes of Jonathan Edwards I want to present to you. First, Jonathan says this. A true and faithful Christian does not make holy living an accidental thing. It is his great concern. As the business of the soldier is to fight, so the business of the Christian is to be like Christ. Jonathan Edwards was a voice calling people who were Christians to become like Christ. Not to make their faith a Sunday only. Or to partition their lives and have faith as one of those partitions. Or one of those sections. Jonathan Edwards knew that when you signed up to be a Christian... You signed up to live your life flat out for Jesus Christ. And then he says something interesting that seems to have a causal tone to it. The influence of the Spirit of God is yet more abundantly manifest. Hear that. The influence of the Spirit of God is yet more abundantly manifest if persons have their hearts drawn off from the world, and weaned from the objects of their worldly lusts, and taken off from worldly pursuits, by the sense that they have of the excellence of divine things, and the affection they have to those spiritual enjoyments of another world that are promised in the gospel. And so his was a call in New England in the mid-1700s for people who were of the faith, to get away from the things that were distractions to them and to get serious about Jesus Christ. Consequently, thousands upon thousands of people came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. The Great Awakening. I think this is the principle that we find in 2 Chronicles 7 as well. It's a passage that we love. It holds out so much hope. When I shut up the heavens, and this is God actually speaking through Solomon, who has just built the temple. Solomon was King David's son. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. So the question is, what does the experience of the first church, <coughs> the record that we're reading in Acts, teach us about the causal relationship between commitment 
and revival. Well, let's read Acts 2, 42 to 47, which is our scripture for today. Pentecost is over. And this is the next piece of the record that Acts, that Luke gives us in Acts. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Those words, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, is what excites and is at the heart of of many of us who want to see revival. Sadly, to be frank, <laughs> it feels like a pipe dream. Because I dare say most of us have lived our Christian lives in churches where we may have witnessed perhaps a handful of people who have come to know Jesus Christ for the first time. It seems that it's not common. And when you look at those words, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, it just seems wonderful, yes, but a long shot. It makes us question, are we doing something wrong? I want to talk about three characteristics of the first church that are a real challenge to me. And I think will be a challenge to you as well. The first is this. The first church was passionate for God. They were devoted, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They were thirsty for knowledge. So they wanted to hear the teaching of the apostles. They understood that their growth and development was dependent upon fellowship with the other brothers and sisters. And so they fellowship. They wanted to keep Christ <coughs> in the center of it all, and so they broke bread. The exact same thing we did, likely with alcohol and a big loaf of bread. And they prayed. And they prayed. Now you might say, we, well, we do this every Sunday. Actually, we do. I, I usually teach something from the apostles, and, and we fellowship together, and we break the bread, and, and we pray. We've done all that already today. How come we're not seeing, on a daily basis, people coming to know Jesus Christ? Well, I, I have to say this, but I say it cautiously. But I would say that the word devotion can be very subjective. Habitual, ritualistic practice is one sense of devotion. 
However, a passionate thirst for spiritual growth and development is quite another view of devotion. And it just seems to me like these people were passionate for God. Couldn't get enough. The reason I think this is my second point here. The first church was, secondly, passionate for the body of Christ. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and, and had everything in common. They, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the, in the temple courts. They were, they were so passionate for Christ and for the body of Christ. They were so passionate for the well-being of each other that they exhibited remarkable charity and sacrifice. They literally sold what they had and put it into the common pot and made sure that everybody was taken care of. Okay, Tim. You're not suggesting... I have my house for sale right now. So. I'm getting a little nervous. You're not suggesting... That we, we need to sell all of our possessions, pool our resources, and live communally. Are you? No, I'm not, actually. In fact, this was a very unique time for the church. The exponential growth wasn't unique. But it was a unique way that they lived. Living communally like this. It was an unusual experience and it was for a time. We know this because we have the record of where the church went after this. First of all, remember what this church was made up of. It started at Pentecost. It started at a time when there were people visiting from all over the Middle East. And people that came to Christ they didn't even have homes. They were just living out of a suitcase. So many of the people that came to Christ were there on a temporary kind of basis. But when they discovered Jesus Christ, it turned their world upside down. And they were like, I don't have a job. <laughs> I don't have a house. But I ain't leaving this place because something really important is happening here. And so I think that this communal ex existence that we read about is not said to be um, a, a, a template for what we're supposed to do in order to um, cause a revival. I think it was an exception. Another reason that they, they kind of got together and lived like this was, was they figured Christ was coming back right away. They felt that, the, that, that Jesus Christ's return was imminent. And so yeah, they're not going to start, you know, these new folks from out of town, they're not going to get a job. <laughs> Why do that when, when Christ is returning? And so there was this sense that, that, that Christ was returning. And so there was a temporary kind of feel to all of it. But as time went on, necessity and a deeper understanding demanded a new reality. That existence was not sustainable. They went to church every day. That's what they did. They were at the temple, 
right? So they, they weren't working. <laughs> they, were, they, were, they sold their stuff. So after a while, that's not sustainable, right? Secondly, we know that the church went from being in good favor to being in bad favor and was persecuted and dispersed. So that put an end to that communal living as well. As well, the church became a much more diverse group and a much more extended group. And so, it seems from Paul's writing, even, that this idea that we pool our resources and live communally was for a time. I'll give you just three quick examples. In Ephesians, he wrote to the Ephesians, he said, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. So, so get a job. And, and, and don't get a job so that you can just take care of yourself. Get a job so that you can help people that might not be able to get a job. The next thing we read is, is in his letter to Colossians. Paul says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you uh, to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord you are serving. And so even the, um, as archaic and inappropriate uh, as they are in our context, but even the institution of slavery, Christ wasn't saying, or Paul wasn't saying, hey, slaves, you're free. <laughs> You know, yeah, just come hang out with us. We're going to go up to the temple every day and we're going to join. No, he said, stay with your masters and serve them as though you are serving the Lord. So there's another example. And then finally, we read in his letter to the Thessalonians, and in fact, you do, you do love all the God, of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and, and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. So there, there, there was a move from this, this temporary kind of, in the heat of the moment, um, lifestyle that was created right after Pentecost to... The new reality of, you know, we work, we live respectable lives within a community, um, we take care of each other, yes, right? But, uh, you know, the, we're, we're, things are going to continue um, as you have known them to be, except there's a whole new reality. You're doing it for the sake of Jesus Christ. Which brings me to the third characteristic of this first church. They were passionate for their community. I love you, you get these little snippets um, in the New Testament of, of what the early church relationship was like to the community in which it existed. And there's one here. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Not the favor of the Christians, the favor of all people. 
I love that. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The picture here is not of some fanatical group that, that was alienated from the broader community, that felt under attack, that needed to hunker down. Rather, it is, it is a picture of a community that is connected very much to the community in which it lives, uh, which mingles and affects the community in which it lives, which is open and, and excited about what's going on because people are like, wow, look at those folks. It's awesome. <laughs> they enjoyed the favor of all people. And so, in this description of the first church, we see that they were passionate for God. They were passionate for the body of Christ. They were passionate for the broader community in which they existed. They didn't think it odd to live in community with their community. There was a good relationship there. Now, I've never played poker, um, but, but I... Understand that when you play uh, poker, you accumulate chips. These little poker chips. The only poker chips I'm familiar with are the ones we use to mark our ball in golf. <laughs> but poker chips. And, and so the idea is um, you want to accumulate as many chips as possible. But in order to accumulate more chips, you have to Risk chips. I think I'm right. You take a chance. You, you put so many chips in the pot. And you can lose all those chips. But the idea of what is called all in is to enter all of your chips. To lay it all on the line. For the chance of winning as twice as much. Twice as many chips as what you started with. You know, it is clear to me that the members of the first church were spiritually all in. They were all in. It's also clear that this had a causal effect. on the exponential growth of the church and the numbers of people that gave their life to Christ. People witnessed these folks who were all in. God blessed these people who were all in. And many, many people were drawn to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that in order for us as a church to experience revival, God is calling us as a church to be all in. Which begs the question, how much do we really want revival? How much do we actually want revival? 
So this is a two-part sermon. You might be thankful for that. Even more thankful if you've got plans for next week. Next week, I'm going to talk about two things. The first is this. What does compromise in the church do to the chances for revival? What does compromise? We're going to take a look at the Corinthian church next week. And Paul has to address issues within that church. And when you see the contrast between what has been described by Luke that's happening in the church in Jerusalem and what you see has become of the church in Corinth where they're divided they have lawsuits against each other seriously right they are self-centered and taking care of themselves. You'll be appalled. <laughs> You'll be appalled to see what happened in some of the churches when they allowed compromise to enter into their experience. When they gave up this notion of being all in. We're going to take a look at Ananias and Sapphira, who were almost all in, but died by the hand of God because they compromised. You see, I think that God's call on a people, if they hope to see revival, is to be all in. And I, and, I, and I really do think that as Scripture says in many different occasions, it's important that you search your heart to see whether or not you truly do want revival. <laughs> because the commitment that's required is substantial. And it is a high calling. So come back next week. I'm going to talk about the effects of compromise. And then I'm going to comment on what I think it means to be all in today in New Glasgow Christian Church. What does that look like to be all in? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing description that Luke has left us of the first church. Just the thought that people were coming to know you daily. We're, we're, we're surrendering their lives to you. That, that people were so devoted. Who were followers. Who were just, they were just all in. I thank you Lord for this record. Lord I do pray that you would search our hearts. And that you would. See if there's within us anything that would indicate inappropriateness or, or things that 
will interfere with our devotion. And so, Lord, we thank you. Lord, we believe that you want people to come to know you. And you want the church to be a vehicle of your purposes. Lord, may we be ready and willing to see revival through this place and through the other churches that are faithful to your word on this island. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.